Good morning. We are here to discuss Parshas Vayeshev. This week's Parsha, Parshas Vayeshev, we have a title called Demystifying Vitachon. Of course, we know the word Vitachon means trust. Demystifying means we're going to try to take the mystery out of it. This month, which is the month of Kislev, sponsored by Alex and Chava Man and family, in honor and appreciation of all women learning initiatives in presidential estates. This week is dedicated to the celebration of the 49th year of Yeshiva Vilkola Beis Moshe Chaim, our institution, and Mazel Tov. Stay tuned for special events and save the date announcements for the upcoming 50th anniversary gala. So the concept of Bitachon is one that many, many, many people think about, talk about, learn about, but I think people are very often left with many questions about how is this bitachon thing supposed to work. Before we get into the parsha, <coughs> what I'd like to do is briefly mention some of the questions that always come along with the bitachon concept. So the word bitachon in Hebrew, bez tes ches, means trust, T-R-U-S-T. It also means confidence. Betach can also mean security. So we have these ideas of security, confidence, and trust. Now, in general, when we talk about trust in a relationship, a great question that people very often have is how to build trust in a relationship. And an even more difficult problem is how to rebuild trust in a relationship where trust was broken. So that's one of the general topics surrounding the concept of trust or bitachon. Typically, when we talk about the word bitachon, we're referring to trust in Hashem. And similarly, we can ask the question, how do we build trust in Hashem? How do we get to trusting Hashem? What does that require? Is that just a matter of really thinking about it? Is that a matter of kind of being Moser Nefesh to the idea that, you know, I just give myself over to Hashem, kind of have to dive into it, and then I gain trust? What are the mechanics of building trust with Hashem? But I also just want to clarify that I'm not talking about faith in the existence of Hashem. Bitachon, when we talk about having bitachon in Hashem, we are not talking about the concept of having faith that Hashem exists. Moreover, as we've discussed several times in the past, in Judaism, we don't have faith that Hashem exists. We have knowledge that Hashem exists. So a different time is emuna. Very often, again, people put emuna together with bitachon, emuna bitachon. So I don't want to talk about emuna today. That's another big topic. I want to talk about bitachon. So bitachon does not relate to faith that God exists or to knowledge that God exists. That's a separate topic. So we're presuming for today's discussion that we're talking about a person who has knowledge that Hashem exists. And now this person is supposed to have trust in Hashem. Like we say in our prayers, bitchu Hashem, have trust in Hashem. For a sentence that we are going to say uh, later that Rashi brings at the end of the prayer, which talks about Yosef, is Ashrei Hagever, praised is the man, Ashrei Sam Hashem Miftacho. 
that he makes Hashem his trust or his trust hold, that a person puts his trust in Hashem. So we're talking about that concept. So one other question, in addition to how does a person gain or <coughs> build, so to speak, the mechanics of trusting in Hashem, is another very related topic that people think about when they think about bitachon, and that is, in theory, many people think that if we have proper bitachon in Hashem, then everything will turn out for the good. Many people say that and think that if your person has real bitachon, then everything will be good. And that's a very difficult statement to say because very often there are people that we think have real trust in Hashem and it doesn't mean that everything is good. It doesn't mean that they have everything in life that they want, especially don't have illness or other forms of suffering or even worse, God forbid. So the corollary of this last topic, which is in Bitachon, which is if I trust in Hashem that everything will be good, the corollary is trusting Hashem that everything is good. So how do we do this? How do we get that trust in Hashem? How do we know that everything is good? And is it true that if I trust in Hashem, everything will in fact just be good? Very difficult to think that that's the case. <coughs> now the truth is that Rabbeinu Bachai in Chovos Halavavos, this is Rabbeinu Bachia, some people call, we refer to him as Rabbeinu Bachai, wrote a book called Duties of the Heart. And he has a very, very extensive, long chapter on the concept of bitachon. It's called Sha'ar HaBitachon, the gateway of bitachon. And many of the things that I'm going to be sharing with you today are explicit in that chapter in the Sha'ar HaBitachon. But I'm not going to read from the chapter. I'm not sure yet if I'm going to even quote it in the transcript, but I wanted everybody to know that you can find many of the precepts that we're going to discuss today explicit in the Sha'ar HaBitachon of the book called Chovos Halavavos, translated as Duties of the Heart. So now let's begin the Parsha conversation, because I'm sure you're all going to agree with me that at a time like today, when we have this horrible surge in anti-Semitism, this war in Israel, which seems to have no clear way to end in a way that will be good, all of this would be something that maybe we could deal with better if we had bitachon, right? So that's one of the reasons for this topic today that we want to demystify bitachon. We want to talk about how to acquire it. We want to talk, of course, about what it is and what does it mean that everything that Hashem does is for the good. So the section of the parasha that we're going to deal with is the end part of the parasha, which is Yosef in his master's house, Potiphar's house, the test that he has <coughs> with the wife of Potiphar that pursues him and wants to have relations with him and his refusal, and then ultimately Yosef being in jail, and then his interpretation of the dreams of the butler and the baker, the Sarah Mashkin and the Sarah Ophel. So, of course, we know the general story. I'm just going to do a very brief recap. The general story is that Yosef tragically is sold by his brothers into slavery. He's bought by a man called Potiphar, who seems to be an executioner that works for Paro. 
And that this man, Potiphar, comes to completely trust Yosef. The Torah says explicitly everything that's in his hands, he gives over to Yosef. He pays no attention to anything except for the bread that he eats, which we're going to talk about at the end of this recap. And Yosef is in charge. And the wife of Potiphar begins to lust for Yosef. She pursues him. Yosef refuses. Finally, one day he comes to the house, perhaps with the intention of, in fact, submitting to Potiphar's wife. But in the moment, he refuses and he does not have relations with her. She grabs his garment and he runs outside with, with leaving his garment in her hands. <coughs> she takes the garment and put, keeps it next to her. The husband comes home and she says that Yosef did all these things to me. And when the wife of Potiphar hears all the things that she said that Yosef did, he gets angry. Yosef takes, I'm uh, sorry, Potiphar takes Yosef, throws him into jail. And then what do you know? The warden of the jail trusts Yosef and the same language. He doesn't pay attention to anything that Yosef does. Yosef is in charge and everything that Yosef does is successful. And then the next part of the Parsha, which is the conclusion, talks about Yosef being in jail and offering to interpret the dreams of the Sarah Mashkim and the Sarah Ophim, the butler and the baker, even though they weren't able to find <coughs> an appropriate interpretation, Yosef offers to interpret it. He does so successfully, and he correctly predicts that in three days the baker will be hung, and in three days the butler will be returned to his post, and then in that conversation, Yosef asks the butler to mention him to Paro, but the butler does not remember to mention him to Paro. And even after the butler is returned to serving Paro, the last sentence in the parasha says that the butler does not remember Yosef. He forgot him. And that's the conclusion of the parasha. <coughs> so what I'd like to do is just focus on a couple of questions that are additional to our overview questions about Pitachon. But before I do that, let me just preface all of this by saying that the Midrash Rabbah, that's the very famous big compendium of Midrashim on the Torah, it's one of our most authentic uh, sources of Midrash for the Torah. It's completely authentic, but I mean, it's one of the most well-known and long-lasting. Uh, In section 89, which is really the beginning of Parshas Miketz, discusses the end of our parasha. And it says very clearly that the sentence in Psalms that Rashi quotes at the end of our parasha, chapter 40, sentence 5 from Psalms, which says, praise is the person that has puts his bitachon, his trust in Hashem. This refers to Yosef. That means in this most simple, straightforward reading of this Midrash, that means that if you had a dictionary that had the word bitachon, and you would want to put somebody's picture next to the word bitachon, you would be putting the picture of Yosef Atzadik. If they wanted to say, who is the paragon of bitachon, it would be Yosef, because that's what the Midrash is saying. Ashrei Hagever, praised is the man that puts his bitachon in Hashem, Ze Yosef, this is Yosef. So that's the background to everything that we're going to be discussing now. 
So question number one is that it's no secret that Yosef and dreams are a recurring theme in the Torah. You have his original dreams. You have the dream, which of, of which are two fascinating dreams of the bundles that bow down and of the stars and the sun and the moon that bow down. Those are two separate dreams. Then we have the dreams of the butler and the baker, which Yosef interprets correctly. And then in next week's parasha, of course, we have the famous dream of Paro on the Nile River with the cows and the stalks of grain. So Yosef and dreams are obviously connected. So our question is, why is it specifically Yosef that has or attains somehow this masterful power of correctly interpreting dreams? So for example, when Yaakov says to Yosef, Yosef, do you think we're going to bow down to you, me, your mother, your brothers, we're going to come down and bow to you? Obviously, that is what Yosef thought, because Yaakov was saying, hey, is this what you think? And what do you know? Yosef is correct, because that is what happens. And then when Yosef interprets the dreams of the butler and the baker, once again, he is correct. It's exactly what happens. And then in next week's parasha, when Yosef interprets the dreams of power after no one else could interpret them, what do you know? He is correct. What is it about Yosef that should somehow militate in favor of the fact that he alone in the entire scripture of that we know is the master dream interpreter? What is the quality of his greatness, of his righteousness, of his relationship with Hashem that allows him to be the successful interpreter of dreams? That's question number one. Question number two. There's a fascinating sentence that I referred to a moment ago in describing Yosef in his master Potiphar's house. This is chapter 39, sentence six, and then we're going to also look at the same chapter 39, sentence nine. So six, uh, chapter 39, sentences six and nine. <coughs> the Torah, in its narration of what happens with Yosef, in Potiphar's house, says, that the master Potiphar left everything in Yosef's hands. And he didn't know anything about what Yosef was doing. He had zero knowledge of anything that Yosef was doing in his own Potiphar's house. Except for the bread that he would eat. Now, there are two significant opinions in the, in the early commentaries. What does it mean that he did not know anything about the bread that he ate? One interpretation, Ibn Ezra and others say, Yosef was a Hebrew, and he didn't eat together with the Egyptians. And so therefore, Potiphar needed to pay attention to his food. He wouldn't let Yosef handle his food. Some say a little bit differently than that, but along the same lines, he didn't care about anything except for what's for dinner. What's the menu plan? I think we can probably, uh, many of the women in the audience can relate to that. Very interesting interpretation. But that's not Rashi and other major commentaries, which is the interpretation that we're going to go with. They say, what does it mean that he left everything in the hands of Yosef, except for the bread that he ate? That referred to his wife. Meaning that everything was Yosef's for the taking, doing with which as he pleased, when it came to his wife, 
she was off limits. Now, the rabbis bring other examples of where a woman or a wife could be referred to as bread. But regardless of how you understand this sentence, sentence nine is also very explicit that that fact is true. Because in sentence nine, where Yosef is refusing to lie with the wife of Potiphar, he says, look, there's nobody greater in the house than me. He hasn't withheld anything from me. This is what Yosef is telling the wife of Potiphar. Nobody has a greater position in this house than me. Potiphar, your husband, has not withheld anything from me except you because you're his wife. Now, my question is, you need to say that? Really? What's the point of the Torah in its narration and later Yosef in his conversation with the wife of Potiphar saying, listen, your husband gave me everything except for you. Of course, he didn't give his wife to be with Yosef. Yes, we know that there are some crazy people that do various things with their marriages, but obviously that's not the norm. And one would assume a husband wouldn't be happy about that. So of course he's not giving over his wife. Why does the Torah need to explicitly state it when describing Yosef's position? And why does Yosef need to explicitly state it to the wife of Potiphar? Does she actually think, <coughs> hey, look, my, my husband lets you run all the books. You could do whatever you want with me too. Really? Yosef needs to tell her, no, 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 that's not allowed. It seems patently obvious that that would not be allowed and therefore absurd that Yosef should even mention it. So that's question number two. <coughs> question number three is from the entire story in the simple reading, it seems that Yosef is a pretty amazing person. No matter what his circumstances were after being kidnapped, sold, and made a slave, he succeeds. Not only does he succeed, he succeeds to the point that he gains the trust of anybody for whom he works. So whether it's Potiphar, where it's the warden, and in next week's parasha, it's going to be Pyra. So clearly, Yosef is a very trustworthy person. And the Torah says many times that Yosef attributes his credits to Hashem. So first of all, the Torah says explicitly that the master of Yosef saw that Hashem was with him, and that whatever he did, Hashem made successful in his hand. Let me ask you a question. How does Potiphar know that Yosef's success is coming from Hashem? Obviously, because that's what Yosef is portraying, right? I mean, unless we think that, you know, Potiphar had a vision of Hashem standing with Yosef and doing everything with him, it must be that Yosef makes it clear that whatever he can do well is because Hashem gives him the ability or the special help, right? And <coughs> therefore, when Yosef is asked to interpret a dream, what does he say? Hello, Lelokim, Pisroni, are interpretations not belonging to Hashem? Everything comes from Hashem, which he tells to the, the person, to the butler and the baker, and he says, next week's parsha to Pura. So then at the end of the parsha, the Torah goes out of its way to tell us, and I'm talking now just about the simple interpretation of the sentence, we're going to talk about what Rashi says in a second. The Torah goes out of its way to say, the butler did not remember Yosef and he forgot him. Now, interestingly, for a person like Yosef, for whom everything is being facilitated by Hashem, everything, right? Everything that he does is from Hashem. He makes it clear time and again. Other people know it too. 
It's astonishing that the butler would forget him. Why does that happen? So that's just a good Pashup Shah question to ask. Now, the rabbis do ask that question. And so we'll read Rashi's interpretation now. And what Rashi says to answer this question, that the butler does not remember Yosef, is for the following reason. This is what Rashi says, chapter 40, sentence 23. After this story happened, the butler forgot him. Why? Because Yosef depended on him to mention him. It became necessary for Yosef to be in jail two years. Now, to be clear, this two years is at the end of 10 years already being in jail. And the calculation on that is simple. Yosef is sold when he's 17. And the general understanding is in that first year between 17 and 18, Yosef is with Potiphar, his wife gets him into trouble, he goes to jail right away, so now he's about 18, and then he's 30 when he stands in front of Paro to interpret his dreams, so there's 12 years in between. So if you're talking about that two years were added, you're talking about two years in addition to the 10 years that he was already in jail. So because, says Rashi, he made it dependent on the Sarah Mashkim, on the butler, to mention him to Paro, it became required for Yosef to be in jail two years. As the sentence says, the one that I mentioned before, praise is the person that puts his confidence in Hashem and he doesn't turn to the Rehavim, which means to the arrogant. And he doesn't have confidence in the Egyptians that call him arrogant. So therefore, I say, that it seems from Rashi that Yosef is lacking trust in Hashem. It seems like Yosef is not the highest Baal Bitachon. He doesn't have the paragon quality of trust. Hey, he trusts Hashem, but this was a very difficult situation. He had already been in jail for 10 years. He wants to get out of there already. He thinks that he should rely on the baker. I'm sorry, on the butler. And so now, because he relied on the butler, Hashem punishes him and he's in jail another two years. That's the simple <coughs> interpretation. And to my knowledge, that's the way the vast majority of people understand this Rashi. My problem is the Midrash that I mentioned before, upon which this Rashi is clearly based, says, praised is the person, trust in Hashem, this is Yosef. Yosef is the paragon of the person that has trust in Hashem. Well, if that's true, then how can it be that he's being punished? And how could it be that he really was relying on the butler? So that's my problem. It seems that we have an inherent contradiction. Either we're going to say that Yosef is the paragon example, and he should not have relied on the butler, and he did, but then how is he a paragon example? Or we're going to say, that he's not the paragon example, but the Midrash says he is the paragon example because it says praise is the person that trusts in Hashem. This refers to Yosef. <laughs> now, seemingly the only way out of that is to say he is the paragon example, but even the paragon might fail once in a blue moon. I do believe that somebody, uh, one of the later commentaries gives that explanation to the Midrash, which I don't find uh, satisfactory at all. So I'm gonna present a different interpretation. How could it be that Yosef truly trusts in Hashem, but nonetheless, 
he asks the butler to mention him to Paro, and because of that, he is required to be another two years in jail. So before we answer the questions, I want to do a little preface. I want to talk about what is trust? How do we get to trust? And I think this is incredibly important to have a good understanding for all of our relationships. So if we look both in the Rambam and in the Rabbeinu B'chai, what we find is that a person that you can trust is a person that you have complete confidence. Rabbeinu B'chai is very explicit in seven qualities that he lists that make a person trustworthy. But the upshot is that the person who is trusting person A, who's trusting person B, has such trust in person B that he has 100% confidence that person B would never, ever, ever do anything to hurt him. He would only do everything to help him. That's the essence, which goes along with my um, general definition of trust, which is we trust the person who protects that which is most important to us. So the Rambam actually talks about this in the context of a true friend. The Rambam says that a true friend is someone with whom a person is completely vulnerable, sharing with them all of their secrets, having full confidence that that friend would never use that information against them. They would only use that information to help them. That is the ultimate of trust. And again, if you read the Ben Rechai, you can read all sorts of particular qualities that give person A the confidence to have that trust in person B. But the point is, is that as soon as a person does that, they give themselves over completely. They have no doubt <coughs> that person B will do everything to help them and nothing to hurt them. So now we have to talk about how that applies to Hashem. Because ultimately, of course, the most trustworthy being in existence, the only, I should say better than that, the only completely trustworthy being in existence is Hashem. Now, people in general have a tendency to want to trust in people, especially people of influence, people of power, as it says in Tehillim, and we say it every day, don't trust noblemen, people of position and power, uh, they don't really have any salvation, meaning they can't really predict their own outcomes, much less be totally trustworthy for someone else. And that's saying it nicely, because often people of position and power, they're pretending you know, that they're trustworthy, and then, of course, doing things only in their self-interest. So only Hashem is 100% completely trustworthy without fail, because only Hashem possesses the absolutes of only doing good, of being able to do whatever he chooses to do, having complete power, in other words, to do whatever he whatever he's able to do. And so therefore, only Hashem is completely trustworthy. But if we just look at what does it mean to trust Hashem, it sounds like I give myself over to Hashem, and Hashem is in charge, right? So Hashem will do everything that's good. And I completely trust that because Hashem is going to do everything that's good, He's going to do everything that I want, that I think is good for me. But of course, that's not true. Because we don't even know what's good for us, is number one. And number two, because it depends on the other element of trust. Just like we can have trust that Hashem will only do what's good for me, Hashem gives me responsibilities to do as well. Part of what's good for me is for me to do my part, 
it's for me to do my responsibilities. That is part of a trusting relationship with Hashem. And the Rebbein Bachai says in a simple example, we don't eat unless we put the fork into the food and put the food into our mouth. But if I have trust, maybe Hashem should put the food in the mouth for me. Right? The most simple of examples that illustrates the point brilliantly. Our entire lives are dependent on this precept that even though Hashem <coughs> does everything for me that is good for me, He does not do everything for me. He insists that I do things for myself as well. That's part of the deal. That is good for me, and that's why he insists on it. So there is no such thing as I trust in Hashem, and everything will come out exactly the way that I want it. First of all, we don't necessarily know what we is, are, is good for us. But more importantly, what about our responsibilities? Can everything come out exactly the way that we want it if we haven't done our part? Can we get a retirement home and a nest egg if we haven't gone to work? Can we eat food if we don't put it into our mouths? Can we expect that everything that Hashem does for us is going to come out rosy if we haven't lived our responsibility? Or is it the opposite? That because we haven't done our responsibility, Hashem is going to do things to make sure that we do our responsibility. It's the opposite. So the therefore is, having trust in Hashem does not mean that everything is going to come out the way that you want it. Having trust in Hashem means that everything that does get orchestrated by Hashem is good for me, even though it feels painful, even though it feels sorrowful, even though it could, God forbid, like the experience recently, can be horribly tragic. Now, I'm not going to sit here and explain how October 7th is good for us. I am going to say that is what Bitachon requires, knowing that it's good for us and good for those victims, as crazy, literally as crazy as that sounds. Sorry, that's the requirement of knowing that everything that Hashem allows or orchestrates is good for us. Again, it doesn't mean that the perpetrators don't have responsibility, just like it doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility. So the end result of having full trust in Hashem is knowing that Hashem will never, ever, ever do anything that's not good for us. That doesn't mean it's not painful, etc. Once we understand that, we have to understand this very clearly. I'll kind of rephrase it so that it's clear, that there is a tandem relationship in trust in Hashem. And Hashem's part is the essence of a trusting relationship because nothing else, nothing is healthier for a person than doing the most he can do for himself with someone else orchestrating all the necessary means and even help to allow that person to both choose and accomplish the ultimate goals. If you want a real simple example, the exercise coach that's best for you is the one that knows your exact limits, the one that's pushing you to the nth degree to the most that you can handle even though it really hurts, it's painful. That's the only way you're going to get there. That's the ultimate in our trust relationship with Hashem. So right off the bat, we're now going to understand that Yosef is the man that trusts in Hashem, as it says in Tehillim, which means that Yosef takes full responsibility for his part of what he needs to be doing 
in his relationship with Hashem. Most 17-year-olds sold and kidnapped and rejected in such an incredibly harsh manner because of some dreams that he had from his family would be completely rejecting of them, would say God is wicked and reject God. And instead the opposite happens because <coughs> I'm suggesting because Yosef recognizes that it must be that he needs to change himself. He has work to do and that he was not ready to live the dreams that he had. So he takes responsibility for his own self-transformation because he trusts Hashem, because he knows if this is what happened to him, it is what he needs. But he doesn't just say, it is what I need, and I'm going to twiddle my thumbs and wait until something else happens, because that's not what trusting in Hashem means. It means you use every ounce of effort to make the best choices that you can right now, despite the very difficult circumstances, sold as a slave, in jail, working for horrible people, being pursued by a lustful, beautiful woman. All of those things requires Yosef to say, this must be my challenge that Hashem thinks is good for me, and I will rise to this challenge. Now, if we can accept that, what he's really saying, or I should say, Yosef's quality is such that he is completely trustworthy because Yosef takes full responsibility for everything he's supposed to do. That's why everybody who he works for completely trusts him. Can you imagine having an employee that you don't worry about what they're doing while they're in the office working for you? Can you imagine that you have no doubt that every single thing that employee is doing is exactly what's good for a company or the boss? We know how rare it is to find such a person, but that's the confidence that everybody has in Yosef. Why? Because Yosef takes full responsibility for every task that he has. He doesn't hold anyone else accountable for anything that he should do. And therefore, he becomes completely trustworthy. So it comes out an incredible thing that the person that truly trusts in Hashem is the completely trustworthy person. Because the person who takes ownership of responsibility is the person that other people can trust because they will never do anything other than what is correct and responsible. And so therefore they become the highest, most trustworthy type of people. So therefore, I suggest that what Yosef is telling the wife of Potiphar, he's saying, look, your husband gave me access to everything because he knows when he gives me access to the money or to controlling the other employees or whatever, that I'm only going to do it to his profit and to his benefit. He also knows that the same is true of you. If your husband would allow you and me to have a relationship, even a close relationship, he knows I will only do that in order to improve his relationship with you. Not that we and you and I would have a relationship. Your husband knows <coughs> that I would do nothing but encourage you to get close to him and to work out your relationship with him. The only reason he doesn't do that is because he knows you. He knows that's not what you want. He knows that you're not interested in that. But other than that, you and I could have a close relationship because I would be helping you and, and uh, Potiphar. That's what Yosef is saying, that you are held back from me 
meaning I can't have the relationship with you, Mrs. Potiphar, that I have with most people, which is I can get close to you, I can do everything that's good for you, I can facilitate your success in your life, because you're looking to get away from your husband, and your husband knows that. Therefore, he doesn't allow that I should have that relationship with you, and he's not wrong. That's exactly what he's telling her. So, now we get to the end of the parish. We're going to go about another six, seven minutes. We'll get to questions or comments. The end of the parish tells us that the butler did not remember Yosef. And that's kind of incredible because all the sentences say how Hashem was with Yosef. So if that's the case, why would it be that the butler does not remember Yosef? Now we have the Midrashim that even go to really interesting extremes. They said, that, for example, that the butler used to tie a knot every day to remind himself to speak to Paro about Yosef, and every day an angel would come and untie the knot, right? Obviously, that's like an allegory for saying that even though the butler was trying, Hashem didn't allow it to be the case. But why not? If, after all, Yosef is a person who trusts in Hashem, obviously he's not really trusting in the butler. He's trusting in the butler like that famous... Uh, you know, that famous joke where a man is, is uh, he, he's in his home and, you know, they come knock on his door. They say a flood is coming and, and uh, he says, no, 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 God will save me. And then the floodwaters start rising. And he goes up to the top of his house and a boat comes by and, you know, he says, you know, come on the boat. And they say, no, 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 uh, you know, God will save me. Finally, it's getting so high he's about to drown and a helicopter comes and wants to pull him up. He says, no, 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 God will help me. And he dies and he gets up to heaven. And he says to God, what happened? I thought, God, you were going to help me. God says, what do you mean? First, I sent you a warning. Then I sent you a boat. And then I sent you a helicopter. Like, what were you waiting for? Right? That's an illustration of God orchestrates things, but we have to choose. So what's wrong with choosing the butler as the boat or the helicopter? And the answer is there's really nothing wrong with that, except one problem is that the butler is an arrogant son of a gun. So if Yosef get saved through the butler, what is the butler going to think about who's running the show? The butler is going to think that the butler is the one in charge. The butler is the one that saves Yosef. Yosef is going to be beholden to the butler because that's the way an arrogant person looks at the world. They don't look at my responsibilities versus what God orchestrates and then that we work in tandem. They look at, look how great I am, look what I accomplished, look what I can do. All of this is actually because a person doesn't want the work of real responsibility. What they want is to feel empowered, they wanna feel like they're entitled, they wanna feel that they're in control, all the things that an arrogant person wants, which is typified by Egypt, the butler, and of course, Pyro himself, as we know from the next Parshios in the Torah. So. The reason that Yosef stays in jail another two years is not because Yosef is being punished. In fact, the Torah, the Rashi doesn't say that he's being punished. In contrast to other Rashis like Paidina and the Pats, where Rashi says Yaakov is being punished. It doesn't say that Yosef is being punished. It became necessary because since Yosef is such a tzaddik, since it's clear that Hashem is with Yosef, if he gets freed through the butler and the butler spreads the message that the butler has control, that is a degradation to the truth of Hashem being in charge. Yosef would not want to be part of that. Hashem would not allow that to happen through Yosef. So therefore, a full two years goes by, making it clear that the butler has nothing to do with Yosef getting out of jail. It's not the butler's influence. It's not his benevolence. It's not because he talked Yosef up. In fact, 
the opposite. He actually denigrates Yosef later. And the reason for all of this is because since Yosef is the paragon of Bitachon, he wanted to be clear that everything, everything in the Torah that happens with Yosef is because Yosef does his responsibility and Hashem assists him in all the rest. And that's why Yosef is the master dream interpreter. Because the real definition of a dream is probably similar to a prophet prophecy, but maybe different in a couple of ways. The real definition of a dream I'm suggesting today is a dream is a way of painting a picture that can happen if a person will take the appropriate steps, if a person will do the right things. And so the one who's really sensitized to what are Hashem's orchestrations and what are a person's responsibilities will be the one <coughs> who will probably properly be able to see what a dream is intended to portend. So Yosef understands very well the balance of what is my responsibility and what is Hashem going to cause and allow to happen because I do my part is Yosef. That's my suggestion for that. We could uh, possibly, possibly elaborate on that a little bit more if anyone wants. I just want to conclude with what I think is a very interesting midrash that hopefully will help us all today. Before I mention that, I just want to give a practical example. The more the Jewish people, the state of Israel, or the IDF brand the IDF as a powerful army rather than the army that is fighting for Hashem's nation and the world, the worse it's going to be. Meaning, it's going to have to be made apparent by Hashem that no, the IDF depends on Hashem. Instead of it becoming clear that everything that the IDF does and hopefully succeeds is because Hashem is orchestrating and working together with them and helping them. But if they're going to brand themselves like the Saramashkin in an arrogant way, then everything is going to, God forbid, be more painful and take longer, etc. So now let's just finish with this uh, Midrash. So on, this is at the end of the parish, it says, another matter, the chief butler forgot you, but I will not forget you. Who was expecting Avraham and Sarah, who were old, to have a son born to them? Who was expecting Yaakov across the Jordan, Jordan, Yarden, with only his half to expand and become wealthy? Who was expecting Yosef, who experienced all these troubles that we mentioned, to become king? Who was expecting Moshe, who was thrown into the Nile, <coughs> to become the savior and the giver of the Torah? Who was expecting Ruth, who was a Gioras, a proselyte, to return to the kingdom of Israel and the ancestress of the Mashiach? Who expected Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah to emerge from the fire? Who was expecting in the days of Haman that somehow Hashem would save the Jewish people? Who expects the Jewish exiles to achieve renown and glory? I don't know if you all caught that, uh, that interview in front of the Senate. Um, I think it was the Senate of Congress, I don't remember, yesterday about, you know, uh, MIT and Yale and uh, Harvard, you know, and they couldn't admit that uh, calling for the annihilation of Jews is against their code of conduct. And think about who expects the Holy One, be he, to cause that the whole world will become one group for them all to call in the name of Hashem to serve him with a common effort. Who expects any of that today?
it gets harder and harder to expect that. But the person of Bitachon knows that's exactly where it's heading. That's exactly where it's heading. That's everybody's fear. It seems like the world is just going in the opposite direction and it's going to just all fall apart. No, no, no. It's exactly where it's heading that this world is going to fully recognize the truth of the monarchy of Hashem. That's what a Baal Bitachon knows to be true. And he says that all these things that happen that seem to contradict that is because we haven't done our part yet. Baal Bitachon says, if I want to gain Bitachon, I need to accept responsibility for my part. And then it'll become more and more apparent to help Vashem more manifest, more clear, and everything that the Baal Bitachon does will Ezra's Hashem be completely successful. Questions or comments, anyone? <coughs> Ari, do you want to ask a question? No. Anyone no. has a question? Uh yes, Mrs. Kanoff. Um, she's unmuting. I think the big challenge becomes, can you hear me? Yes. I, can you hear me? Can't hear you. Some things, I can't hear you. I can hear you. Hello? Hello? We can hear you. Can you hear me? Okay, yes. great. Okay. Okay. So I think the big challenges with the big tachon is a matter of the time frame. You know, because um, not so much how do you maintain the Vitachim over time, but um, in a situation because I think synchronizing your concept, a human's concept of Vitachim in a, a human who is so finite and our time is so finite and Hashem's um, time, which is infinite. So it's kind of like having... You know, in a situation where our this situation is so painful, and yet to an infinite time frame, it's kind of like a woman in labor. It just goes away. Good examples. Very good example. Yeah. And then you don't remember it. Anyway, I don't remember it because whatever. <laughs> so it's like, so in in a in the time frame of infinity juxt juxtaposed with our time frame of absolute being finite and mortal i think that's where the big challenge comes yeah i agree you know, with you our time like la so the pain to us lasts forever and drags and drags and drags whereas to an infinite being it's just a little flash. It's like, yeah, oh, not even. So, yeah. So, like, so how to, how to, it's like reconciling that is like a very big deal. Like, and how yes. do you feel important to the, to the infinite being when you're a mortal being and you have such different concepts of what time and pain are? Yes. Yeah, so that's the, that was the piece I was going to add, especially the pain factor. Um, you know, because we don't understand premature death and all these things, it's very, very challenging because we do think in mortal terms. 
we can't really see, quote unquote, the big picture, both in terms of time and in terms of quality of events. Mm -hmm. I agree with you. It is the big challenge. Um, <clears throat> so how does a person get to this pitachon? My answer is, in a nutshell, by focusing on what we know is our responsibility part. Then we can much more easily accept the things that happen because we're going to be using all of them to better ourselves and then also bring about shortening that, that pain and that window of time. All right. So just like, what's that? Okay, green. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. Thank you. Great. Thank you for articulating that. Okay. Dr. Rothman. I, I had a question about how did uh, Yosef know? I, I know that in Batak, I know that I, I, I know that in Brachas, at the end of Brachas, that uh, they talk about how the dreams are almost more real than than the reality we're living in and i understand that uh that there would that e even uh pharaoh's dreams that's coming up real soon with the uh with the cows how did how did yosef know how to interpret these dreams they weren't his dreams he just had so much das what's going on that you can understand somebody else's dreams and be so clairvoyant where, where did that come from is it did it come from his betakum where where did it come from yeah that's a very good question what i'm trying to put forth is that a person who lives a very clarified life knowing his responsibilities and doing them and not thinking that anything is happening other than what needs to happen for people to do their job he, be, he quickly becomes very attuned to that kind of line, right? That border between what is our Hishtaglus and what is Hashem's part. Okay? So therefore, in his understanding of other people, <coughs> he's also able to look at where were they not responsible and what is their part, right? And what is Hashem's part in their lives, right? So for example in the uh, interpretation of his own dream, where he thought he was ready to become king, he realizes that he wasn't ready because of what happened to him. So even though he knew his inner greatness and his ability, and that ultimately he would be an incredible conductor, orchestrator for the rest of the tribes, he was able to learn that he hadn't fully lived up to his responsibility. And therefore, whatever he's experiencing after is teaching him appropriate, um, recognition of others and not kind of lording over them, but instead empowering them and helping them in their things, in their businesses, in their you know homes, etc. Now, when it comes to understanding other people's dreams, I think also he's able to sense very clearly that there's a big problem between Potiphar and his wife, their own uh, kind of relationship challenges, and he's able to point out that he can't be close to her because of their relationship issues, not because he doesn't like her or find her, you know, attractive. When it comes to the butler's dreams, right, that doesn't relate to the dreams, it's just an example of how he's understanding people. When he comes to the butler and the baker's dreams, he is able to understand 
a huge difference between the butler not living up to his job versus the baker not living up to his job. Therefore, he's correctly able to see that one of them is going to live and one of them is going to die because he was able to understand better than Tyro immediately that the butler wasn't really responsible, but the baker really was. He, he knows very clearly like where a person is being negligent <coughs> or where a person is not being negligent. So therefore, when he gets the ingredients of a dream in light of understanding the person and how they are or are not living up to their um, you know, responsibilities, I think it makes it much easier for him to interpret. Now, on top of that, because he's in such consonance with Hashem, Hashem probably finds it very easy to make these insights <coughs> available to him because he's working with Hashem. Um, Ari Marinelli just asked a question. I just want to address that for one second. Is that okay, Dr. Rothman, for now? Obviously, there's always more. Okay. Um, so Ari Rivari asked the question, how does a person know that something that's happening is good for him or is it good for, you know, the cosmos? Meaning maybe it's only good for on a cosmic scale, but it's not good for him personally. And of course, Ari is thinking of an example of innocent people dying like on October 7th for the sake of all the Jewish people. And Ari, I believe that the answer to your question is that whatever happens has to be good for both. Whatever happens to the Jewish people has to be both good for the individual and good for the Jewish people as a whole. Even though it's hard to understand that could be good on an individual basis. You know, God forbid, but the example of being a carbon is an incredibly edifying thing. Uh, why is this person a carbon and not that person? Only Hashem knows that calculation, why it would be good for that person, not good for another person. Uh, that's my understanding, but uh, happy to think about it more. Okay, hopefully everybody will zoom over to my father's class. We are at 1028 and almost 1029. In the meantime, I wish everybody not only a great day, a lichdegachanika. All the best.